Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, consider joining my crew on Patreon to win amazing prizes like our adorable merch, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, and incredible sex toys. Go to patreon.com slash sexedwithdb to join my crew. Get discounts at all of your favorite sex toy shops at sexedwithdb.com. And follow us on Insta at sexedwithdbpodcast and on TikTok at sexedwithdb. If you want to partner with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. To all my friends out there in a long-distance relationship, are you feeling disconnected from your boo? Wish they could bring you pleasure in person if FaceTime sex just isn't cutting it? Well, thank goodness for Clona Willy. Clona Willy makes DIY molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a high-quality, 100% body-safe sex toy, so you can stay connected no matter where you are. Use promo code SEXEDWITHDB20 for 20% off at clonawilly.com. If you're like me, it's important to choose a toy with body-safe materials and a proven orgasmic track record. Fun Factory pioneered body-safe toys and has a serious cult following of vibrator enthusiasts. Honestly, you can't beat their medical-grade silicone toys. Not only are they long-lasting, they're also designed by German engineers for serious motor power. Ready for an ubergasm? Use discount code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off your new favorite Fun Factory toy. Here are my top three favorite things I love about Uberlube. Number one, Uberlube makes sex feel a lot more pleasurable. It's as simple yet as powerful as that. Number two, Uberlube is recommended by leading doctors and its body-friendly ingredient list makes it widely used by people with sensitivities to lubricants. And number three, Uberlube will not stain clothing or bedding. Any spills can be easily cleaned with detergent and water. Get your bottle of Uberlube now with code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. Good afternoon, Brandon. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. How are you doing? I'm all right. I feel like every time, yeah. uh, you know, we intro this show for the past couple of weeks, there definitely is a heaviness and it's uh, obvious and unavoidable and very challenging. And uh, that's okay for us to feel heavy and for things to be really hard. Um, because I think that a lot of people listening right now are probably feeling those things too. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's necessary, right? I think it's necessary for us to acknowledge the heaviness of the moment. Um, we're not robots. <laughs> we are people. And, and that means that we feel, uh, and there is, there's a lot to, to process and grapple with right now. So yeah, you're right. It's heavy. Uh, it feels like every day is heavy. I am sort of a pragmatist and operationalist. So I jump into like, what can I do to help? What can I do to, to help, uh, build little moments of oasis for people in my own community uh, in all of this. But, you know, I think it's a good reminder to to just pause sometimes and, and really process what we're going through. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm really, really glad that you're here um, because you are an expert and uh, someone with a lot of really good experience and information and knowledge. And so I'd love for you to introduce yourself to folks listening and just tell us about your work and your advocacy. 
Yeah, I appreciate it. So uh, I am Brandon Wolf, he, him pronouns. I am currently the press secretary at Equality Florida. That is the state's LGBTQ civil rights organization. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm still honestly fairly new to the work of advocacy, of policy, of politics. Um, I got started in this work uh, really on a volunteer basis about six years ago. And then in 2019, I left my career. I, I was in uh, corporate management at Starbucks for a long time. And uh, I left that career to, to do this work full time. I'm really, really grateful to be able to do the, the, I think, important and critical work of lifting LGBTQ stories, of centering our voices. Um, everything is an LGBTQ issue because everything impacts people in general. And so making sure that our perspectives and stories are told um, is, is something that's deeply personal to me. It's, it's really important to me. And I think is really uh, timely and relevant right now. You know, the, the world is uh, an increasingly dangerous place for LGBTQ people, especially for kids. Uh, and so centering our stories, our lived experiences is is so, so important right now. Agreed. Yeah, I think as a sex educator myself and someone who does uh, and has gone into classrooms and understands that uh, youth, at least, you know, in my bubble of New York, of Brooklyn, New York here, uh, are very much uh, aware of their sexuality and very much advocates for queer identities and being able to like share their whole selves. And it's something very different than what I, as you know, I'll be 30 in December experienced when I was in middle school. And when I was at that age, and uh, I really tip my hat to like young people nowadays who, when it's safe to do so, feel very, uh, you know, compelled to share who they are and how they feel and the messiness that could come along with that. So Super yep. important. Really stoked to have you on. Um, if you're comfortable, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your experience uh, at the Pulse nightclub um, and how that moment, um, or I'm sure many moments, inspired you uh, to work in advocacy. Yeah, um, I, I told you that I'm, I'm fairly new to this work, and that's because until six years ago, I was really comfortable being, you know, in every way normal. Uh, when I was growing up, I, I grew up in a rural town outside of Portland, Oregon. And when I tell people that I'm from the Portland area, they have this like mental picture of what that must have looked like. There's pink hair and tattoos and right. craft beer, Birkenstocks, Subarus. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's like this leftist woketopia, right, where anybody can be whatever they want. And that's that's true if you live in parts of the city of Portland, but you know, I think like a lot of the country, uh, rural Oregon is very different from urban Oregon. And the, the town I grew up in is nothing like downtown Portland. Um, in fact, it's, you know, it's, I think, a, a town that folks can at least imagine in their minds. There's a handful of stoplights. Uh, there's, you know, probably more livestock than there are people. It's the kind of town where you build really deep relationships with people. You go to school with the same people um, from the time you're in kindergarten all the way through the time you graduate high school. And for some people, for some demographics of people, that's probably um, you know really reassuring. It's it's affirming uh, to have people around you that you're in such deep connection with. But um, being a queer person of color in a town like that is really difficult. My childhood experience centered a lot around not feeling like I belonged uh, around, you know, this, this deep obligation or, or need to, to overachieve in order to fit in, right? There was this almost suggestion, insinuation that 
if you want to be a part of that world, if you want to be accepted and affirmed and you have to work for it, you got to work twice as hard to get half as much. And uh, so I, I did all the things that people told me I was supposed to do in order to be affirmed in this community or society. I got 4.0 grades. I you know, was student body president. I was in this club and that club, had a part-time job and did after-school activities, all in the hopes that I could bank enough brownie points mm. that when I finally came out and identified as my full self, that people would forgive me for that. Um, but we know how those stories go. It's not so easy to, to find your little niche in society. And, and so I struggled a lot as a kid. When I graduated high school, um, there were 2,000 students in our school. We served this big county area. And of those 2,000, 11 of us were Black. And there were wow. even fewer uh, than that that were out as LGBTQ. And so, you know, there was this inside, this deep yearning for a world that, you know, looked a little bit more like me and, and loved a little bit more like me. Um, and I didn't know where to find that, right? There were adults in my life from a very young age who told me that the world was just never going to be ready for someone like me, that I was always going to have to find a way to, to smush myself into the checkboxes on a census form, right? Um, to mute the parts of my identity that might be uncomfortable for other people around me. Um, and so when I got an opportunity in 2008 to leave home and move across the country, I took it. I saw a, an ad for performers wanted at Disney. I auditioned and got a contract a couple weeks later. And before I knew it, I was with two suitcases moving 3,500 miles away from home to a oh, place wow. I'd never been to before. What character yeah, was, were you? Uh, I danced in parades and shows for about five years. Oh, uh, wow. And it was an incredible experience. I, I found a lot of the things, you know, that I had been missing in, you know, in my hometown. I, I found belonging in foods I'd never tried before, in faces I had never imagined possible before. All of a sudden I was in this this melting pot, this really rich, beautiful, diverse fabric. And I felt like for the first time I could be myself, right? I found safety in this community. I also found for the first time safety in chosen family. Um, I had heard that term before, but it didn't really mean a lot to me until 2014 when I met my best friend, Drew. And from the very first day we met, he, he changed my life. Um, the, the day we met, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a blind date. Well, sort of like a half blind date because I am a millennial gay man after all, which means I had thoroughly Instagram stalked him, picked out names Googling. for our children, of lots of Googling, decided who would take whose last name. You know, I had the whole thing plotted out. Yes. And in my Instagram stalking, I noticed that we had a mutual friend who was liking all of his photos. And so I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not much of an adventurous guy, but this feels like a moment you have to take a risk. I reached out and, and asked if he'd set us up on a date. So we got to date day. Um, folks should know that I'm very inherently an introverted person. So it takes me a lot to work up to one-on-one -on -one situations like that. And so I have a routine where I hype myself in front of the full length mirror in the corner of my room. And I'm like, okay, he's going to ask you what your favorite color is. The answer is green. He's going to ask you what your favorite food is. The answer is Mexican food, like getting myself prepped and ready for this, for this big date. I'm rehearsing for my, you know, for my future husband. <laughs> and so I get to uh, P.F. Chang's at Millennium Mall and I could see him sitting inside through the glass of the door and he looked exactly like I had imagined. And so I, I went inside and I sat down next to him on the bench. We were waiting for our table and we ordered a round of drinks and he's holding this really big oversized martini glass and he's like, okay, I have a question for you. And I thought, well, 
I have been preparing for this literally all day, so I think I'm good. And he said, what are your thoughts on the for-profit healthcare industry in America and its impact on consumers? (laughs) And I was like, prepared to say green, but suddenly that's not the right answer anymore. Uh, And even I had a, a sip or two of liquid courage. And so I thought, all right, let's talk about healthcare in America. And that one question that seems sort of funny now turned into an entire night's worth of interesting intellectual conversation about who we are and and why we're the way we are. We talked about everything that we believe, politics and boys. and, And what was fascinating to me in reflecting was that he was unlike anyone I'd ever met before. He was a a queer person of color that was proud of who he was. He never once through an entire evening lowered his voice for fear that the table behind us might've heard that we were two guys on a date. He never once tried to deepen the gravel in his voice or stiffen his wrist to avoid being detected. He was just audacious and and big and loud and proud of who he was. Uh, And I found it awe-inspiring and fascinating. So unfortunately, we did not get married. We did not have children, but we did become best friends almost immediately. And I just found myself craving being in his presence because he had unlocked something that I had been told my entire life I was never going to be afforded, right? That that he had this sliver of safety and identity that I so desperately wanted to be in close proximity to. He met his partner Juan in 2015. And, you know, by this point, I'm like firmly in, ingrained as the best friend. And that means I have a very particular role when people would come into his life. I have to be very skeptical I have to be incredulous of them. I have to put them through the ringer to make sure that they are really good enough for my best friend. So I did all the things that you're supposed to do, right? I I made up nicknames for Juan. I gave him the wrong address to a restaurant once just to see (laughs) if he would show up. Uh, I I cornered him in a bar and grilled him one time, uh, challenging him not to ever break my best friend's heart. And and while I was good at, at playing the skeptical, dutiful best friend, the truth is that they were the same person. They had this same optimism and energy and warmth that invited people to be a part of whatever it is that they were doing. It could be in a room. And and while together, it was like one ball of energy, like no one else was there. They also had their own gravitational pull that people would just want to surround themselves with Drew and Juan. And so we became the three musketeers. We would, you know, on New Year's Eve go and, and... whirl and twirl underneath disco balls and and challenge each other to live more fully in the coming year. Um, And everything about it was the normal that I had been told the world was never going to be ready to give someone like me. Um, June 11th of 2016 in our community, we often refer to as the last normal day. And everything about it was normal. It was a Saturday. It was laundry day. I was, uh, you know, folding socks and underwear on the couch uh, Drew and Juan were almost offensively photogenic and, and they were on a date at SeaWorld. And so I'm there like champagne hangover in my scrubs, looking rough. And there they are looking, of course, 10 out of 10. And I'm angrily liking their photos on Facebook. Um, it was June. So it was a, a warm day. I spent some time by the pool. Uh, and as the day wound to a close, I did the most normal thing. I texted my best friends and asked if they wanted to get a drink. Um, they came to my apartment just before midnight, which was a little later than usual for us. Um, we listened to the same playlist we always listened to. We watched the same music videos that Drew always made us watch. Um, 
we had the same drinks around my kitchen island that we always had. I was almost never allowed to have control of the cocktail shaker because they make drinks two or three times as strong as they need to be. Um, but Drew relinquished it that night. He grimaced every time he took a sip, but he let me have control. When it came time to, to choose our venue for the night, we just went to the club we'd been to hundreds of times before. Um, Pulse was a safe space for people like us. Um, it was one of the first places I ever went where I held hands with someone without looking over my shoulder first. It's one of the first places I ever went where I wore my, my skinniest pair of jeans without being afraid that someone would call me a name or, or throw something at me. For a lot of people, especially queer people of color, Pulse was the lifeline that we carved out in a world that threatens violence against us every time we open the door. When I was growing up, school was not a safe place for me. Home was not always a safe place for me. Church was certainly not a safe place for me. Safe, safety was found in the, the places that I carved out with my friends. It was the, you know, the, the kitchen floor at my best friend's house where we would whisper secrets about who we were to one another. It was places like Pulse. And everything about that night was normal. There was a line outside. There was the same sort of angry drag queen that was always there to take my $5, snatch the $5 out of my hand. We went to the same bartender we always went to, ordered the same drinks we always ordered. We had a, a usual spot on the patio and Drew um, had a master's degree in clinical psychology. So when he would have a drink or two, he would then offer you free therapy sessions, uh, whether you wanted them or not. And that night he talked a lot about community and, and love and compassion. He wondered aloud why we let the little things get in the way of how much we care about each other so much. Um, he talked about how, how much he wished we focused on the things that we have in common instead of the things that make us different. And as he was wont to do, uh, when he was coming in for a landing on his big point, he would drape his, his arm over your shoulder. And he draped an arm over my shoulder and he said, you know, what I wish we did more often is tell each other that we love each other. And it was not long after that, that the most normal night of my life became the extraordinary tragedy that people know Orlando to be. Uh, it was just after two o'clock that, that gunshots rang out. I was washing my hands at a bathroom sink and, and everything about it is, is so vivid to me. I can remember the, the poster on the wall above the urinal. I can remember this plastic cup on the edge of the sink sort of looking like it might fall off. I can remember how cold the water was from the faucet. And I remember that feeling of panic as gunfire began to rage in the background, the hair on my neck standing up. I can remember this this group of people, about 12 people, rushing into the bathroom looking like they had seen the purest form of, of hell. I remember huddling against the wall and the girl behind me shaking so violently, trying to contain her screams that I could feel her vibrating against the floor. Um, I remember this debate about whether we should run or hide and, and making a decision. We were in a men's only restroom. There were no doors. There were no stalls. There was just us, this short hallway, and then the club. And so we locked arms, this dozen people that I had never met before, whose faces I probably wouldn't recognize today. And we, we sprinted for an exit. I remember the room being full of fog machines, smoke, the, the smell of blood and gunfire that was hanging in the air. I remember telling myself not to look left into the dance floor because that's where the sound was coming from. And I just knew that if I looked, whatever I saw, I would never be able to forget. 
I remember wishing I'd gotten a chance to say goodbye to my parents because I just knew that I was going to die in what was supposed to be the safest space in my community. I remember the sliver of light from this emergency exit in the back of the room, a door that I had never seen open before. And I remember the feeling of relief when that door flung open and we were standing in a parking lot, the gunfire still raging in the background, this bang, 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 relentless. And, and there was blood and people screaming and jumping over bushes, but there was a feeling of relief because I had done the impossible. I'd made it out with my life. And I also remember how fleeting that feeling was, that that feeling of relief went away when I realized that my best friends, Drew and Juan, my chosen family, my brothers, had been in their most normal spot, wrapped in each other's arms underneath the disco ball, right in that man's line of fire. It was June 12th of 2016 that a man armed with an assault weapon fired 110 rounds into Pulse nightclub. He killed 49 mostly LGBTQ people of color and 19 of his rounds struck and killed Drew and Juan. That was what changed everything for me because for the first time I understood my place in all of this. That it's not just about finding your little sliver of normal and riding it off into retirement. It's about our obligation to help each other find safety in this storm. Um, we had a funeral service for Drew six days after the shooting, one of the hardest days of my life. And I remember writing my eulogy in the car. My hand was shaking so much I could barely get the pen to the paper. We got inside and his mom had asked me to be a pallbearer that day, something I'm really grateful for. And um, as I was helping to push his casket down the aisle, I I found myself gripping the side of it really tightly. And I, I realized in reflection that that's because I didn't want to let go of my best friend until I'd found the right words to say goodbye. So I got to the front of the church and I looked down at his casket and I made him a promise. I promised him that I would never stop fighting for a world that he would be proud of. That is the promise that has reshaped the last six years of my life. It's what propelled me to leave my career and go into advocacy full-time. It's what prompted me to begin to get outside of my little introverted shell and share my story because the world that Drew would be proud of is a world that all of us can be proud of. And it's a world that queer young people right now desperately need. They deserve it. And they, they need us to fight for them to, to have that world. So i sorry for the long story, but I feel like it's important to tell you how we got to June 12th of 2016, as much as it is important to tell you about that night itself. Definitely don't apologize. I'm sure um, that you get my reaction from people a lot when you tell that story. Um, first of all, like you're an incredible storyteller. So thank you thank for you. sharing. Um, I think that everything that you just said is like incredibly um I I'm really like pretty speechless like I'm sure you've said this story many times in your work and advocacy and I think that I as someone like in the sex ed space and like just a person who like doesn't have to fear for my life in everyday scenarios like 
have the privilege of not needing to think about it as much as of course you and other survivors and other people who share your identities have to think about it and so I think that it's so important for us to like make space for people like you to be able to explain to even like allies and people who like want to make change how how incredibly important it is to like hear something like that in order to propel you forward to take action and it we shouldn't need to hear that in order to do that but I'm just very appreciative of like you sharing that and like being willing to go through the emotions of that um I imagine every time you do um even though you are in your role as a press secretary and it's your job to be really good at communication and like move people as you do um I don't feel like that is easy (laughs) and um I'm just very appreciative so thank you for sharing your story and thank you for for leaving me space to do that I know um it's hard in in short periods of time to to get to all the things we want to get to but um that is that that story that experience is what has grounded everything that I do and so you know as we talk about like don't say gay and, and, you know, gun violence and the rising extremist hatred against marginalized people. All of those things for me are grounded in understanding what militarized hatred really looks like and what the cost looks like too. That every time a life is is stolen from us, every time one of these things happens, um, it's not just a number. It's not just a notch on America's long belt of, of gun violence or, or hate violence. It's somebody's family. It's somebody's Drew. It's somebody's Juan that is being stolen from them, ripped away from them, and um, it's just so important to me to to keep us grounded in that. Yeah, I completely hear you um, and understand like that perspective and think it's incredibly important. Um, I would like to like shift gears just a little bit, specifically to talk about the very integrated work that you're doing with Equality Florida. I think um, I'd love to just start with hearing like from you, like what Equality Florida is and what you do there. And then we we will get into the don't say gay bills and other anti-queer actions um, from local and state government. Yeah, thank you. So Equality Florida is a remarkable organization. It was founded in 1997. Uh, during the Jeb Bush administration. So you can imagine what kind of a political climate that was like. Uh, and it's it really our sole mission is to create a Florida that is equal for all people. Um, our, our goal has been and, and always will be full equality for Florida's LGBTQ community. And by the way, when we achieve full equality for LGBTQ people, that is linked to equality and justice for everyone. It's why we've also been a pro-choice organization since 1997, our founding. Uh, it's why we see these issues of, of gun violence and abortion rights um, and, and healthcare access. All of them are tied and linked because you can't have government entities stripping people of some civil liberties without that impacting all civil liberties. It's, it's all of us together or, or, you know, whether it's, it's for good or for bad. And so um, I'm really proud to work for an organization that sees the link between civil liberties, that sees the link 
between communities. We do a lot of really important proactive work. We have powerful program areas like the Safe and Healthy Schools Program, the Transgender Equality Program, the Business, uh, the Equality Means Business Program. All of those are designed to help propel LGBTQ equality, to, to help build coalitions and, and alliances, to help give resources and, and support to people who are directly impacted, um, you know, to help build public awareness, um, and ultimately to, to affect change. We want to affect change, not just on a policy level, but to change hearts and minds. Uh, the Safe and Healthy Schools program was birthed in the wake of the Pulse nightclub shooting um, because we understood as an organization that you know, changing a policy here or there is great, but it's not going to uh, ultimately shift public perception, that we needed to do the work of uprooting hatred and bigotry where it starts, which is in the education system. And so um, that was launched in 2016. We said we'd be lucky if in the next couple of years we were in three or four big school districts. We now do work in 64 of Florida's 67 school districts, um, working to deeply embed that, that belief that inclusion and diversity and affirmation of LGBTQ young people is integral to the education system as a whole. And then, of course, we play defense a lot here in the state of Florida. I think, you know, I, I see the memes. I get it. Bugs Bunny sawing us off and sending us into the Atlantic Ocean. It's cute. And I totally understand. But the truth is that there are a lot of people who are harmed by policies here in the state of Florida. We're a, we're a, a state of 20 plus million people, 50% of whom, by the way, did not vote for this governor. Um, and so it's important that we show up to play defense for, for those folks, for our community. We fight back against really bad policies on a local and state level. Um, we had successfully defeated every piece of explicitly anti-LGBTQ policy that was proposed in Florida until 2021, from our founding until 2021. Uh, and then, of course, we've seen a couple of, of really hideous years um, that have included some of the most vile pieces of anti-LGBTQ policy we've seen in a long time. But um, on top of that, our work is to hold lawmakers accountable. We have big electoral programs that fight to ensure that, that you know, politicians pay a political price for the votes that they take, for the words that they use. Um, that they are accountable to the people who put them in those positions in the first place. So all of that to say we are a, a big LGBTQ civil rights organization that fights every single day to make sure that queer people in our state are heard, that we're seen, that we're treated with dignity and respect, that all young people are protected from harm, that all families are respected in our state. Uh, that means playing offense. It means playing defense. And I am really proud to, to play a role in, in sharing stories as a part of that mission. Are you falling into a pattern with your partner? Looking to spice things up but aren't sure how? Exit the ordinary with Lion's Den. Lion's Den has hundreds of your favorite brands to help you and your partner reconnect or try something new. From novices to dungeon masters, there are products for every comfort level. With 50 plus years in business, Lion's Den is here to help. Can't make it to a local store? Shop online and chat with a customer service team member while you shop. Lion's Den offers our listeners 15% off in-store and online using code SEXEDWITHDB. Excitement, intimacy, anticipation, contentment. Uberlube lets you feel all the things you want to feel when it comes to sex with yourself and with a partner. It makes sex better for everyone by reducing friction and increasing pleasure. Recommended by leading doctors, Uberlube is body friendly, free of parabens, preservatives, and petrochemicals. Plus, Uberlube is latex compatible, so it's safe, effective, and pleasurable to use with condoms. Try Uberlube now with code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com.
Yeah. What important work. And, you know, I'm sure you all talk about this to folks that you try to recruit to join and to volunteer. But as, you know, a public health person, we learn a lot about how uh, positive and protective policies for queer youth genuinely do like improve their mental health, their safety, their well-being once they are involved in safer schools, in clubs that support them, in teachers who are willing and able to use their correct pronouns. Um, they, there are so many positive benefits to all of those things. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, all the way from social transition to if, if and when young people choose to transition in other ways, um, you know, it's super important that they have access to that healthcare. Um, That's right. And, and especially trans people and non-binary folks. Um, and so I'd love to like, ex for if you could explain a little bit, you know, it's the don't say gay bill has obviously been in the news and SNL has made fun of it. It is very much part of like pop culture in a sense to where people like understand like that, how ridiculous this bill is. But, you know, there are other anti-LGBTQ plus actions from this governor in Florida and I'm wondering if you can just maybe delve into like some of those bills, like why they're so harmful and how like everyday lay people, you know, such as myself, who maybe I'm a sex educator, maybe I have this platform, um, but I want to know like how I can affect change um, and someone not living in Florida, like how can I support? Yeah, thank you. And and it is, it's big, right? Because it's, it's not just about one particular policy. I appreciate you naming that. It is about an extremist right-wing agenda that is designed to strip people of their civil liberties. Uh, it has never just been about, you know, queer kids on a soccer field or someone using the bathroom or, you know, what, what families are represented in classrooms here in Florida or beyond. It has always been about um, you know, implementing control over people, uh, censoring certain people out of society who don't fit inside the pre-prescribed boxes that, that we are assigned. Um, and again, it's, it's linked to this idea that we should have autonomy over ourselves and, and we deserve communities that celebrate us, affirm us, and lift us up exactly as we are. Um, this governor, Governor Ron DeSantis, I'll, I'll let you in on the worst kept secret. He's desperate to be president someday. He does not care about the physical or mental health outcomes for anyone else aside from himself. He wants a new plaque on his desk, a new pin on his lapel, and he is willing to form you know, unholy alliances with virtually anyone who will help him get there. He's willing to say anything and do anything to get to his end goal of sitting in the Oval Office behind that desk. And so what does that led us to? Well, it's led us to a whole host of really extreme policies being proposed by his administration and his allies in the legislature. Um, you know, you look at things like the things that came before Don't Say Gay, the, the bill that banned 13-year-old trans kids from participating in soccer with their friends. Uh, you look at, you know, efforts with through state agencies to strip transgender people of gender affirming care, not just trans kids anymore via the Department of Health, but also trans adults um, via via the Agency for Healthcare Administration that's trying to strip Medicaid funding for transgender Floridians. Um, you know, you look at policies like the Stop Woke Act that the governor has championed, which is attempting to censor conversations about racism and oppression from high school or from school classrooms and, and from private businesses, diversity, equity, and inclusion training programs. All of it is connected. 
because it is a part of this larger authoritarian censorship agenda that, that positions Governor DeSantis as the savior. He creates all of these imaginary problems and imaginary villains in society and convinces people that they're under siege, that they're under threat by other people in their communities. And the only one who can save them is Governor DeSantis. And all they have to do is sign away all of their liberties and rights in the process and allow him control over all of it to, to help push back against these sort of shadowy isms that are out there trying to indoctrinate their children. And so that brings us to Don't Say Gay, House Bill 1557. It was filed in January of this year and largely was a, a Frankenstein's monster of Texas's abortion ban uh, that deputized people in the community to sue anyone and everyone they disagree with to enforce the law. And uh, what was happening in Virginia around the sort of phantom CRT debate uh, in schools. We got this bill, House Bill 1557, that um, bans classroom instruction on sexual orientation in grades K through three and severely restricts that instruction in grades four through 12. And there's a lot of misinformation that has been pumped into the sort of political atmosphere around this particular piece of policy. Most of it coming from right-wing proponents of the policy like Moms for Liberty and Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro and Governor Ron DeSantis himself, because they're trying to put lipstick on a pig for you know lack of a, a better uh, euphemism. This policy has always been about censoring LGBTQ people from classrooms. I'll give you a really salient example. In second grade, uh, Florida students are required to complete a family tree project. And that is, you get a cartoon cutout of a tree, you put your family on the different branches, and then you come in and you, you give a presentation, you share your family with, with your classmates, you talk about the things you're proud of, you talk about the trips you go on on the weekends. Imagine a second grade student comes into the classroom and is presenting and says, on this branch, I have my two moms and sometimes we watch movies on the weekends. Another student says, well, that's weird. You can't have two moms. Where's your dad? If a teacher steps in and says, we don't talk about people's families like that. Sometimes families have two moms and they're just as valuable as anybody else's. There is a very real possibility that that teacher has now engaged in classroom instruction on sexual orientation that they may have put the entire school district at legal liability because they dared to affirm that families with two moms are just as valuable as anyone else's. Now, what happens next? The second child who is shocked and surprised to learn for the first time that some families do indeed have two moms goes home and says, guess what I learned today in school? Some families can have two moms. That child's parents are now deputized to sue the school district. They don't have to go through an arbitration process. They don't have to call the teacher or the principal or even their school board member. They can call their attorney first, sue the school district for the teacher having engaged in classroom instruction on sexual orientation. And guess what? The school district can't get any of their legal fees back, even if they win the case. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with the chilling effects that we've already seen across the state because cash-strapped school districts can't afford to be mired in lawsuits all the time. And so they're stuck holding the bag. What do we do with this vague, unconstitutional piece of policy? How do we implement it with no guidance from the state of Florida? Well, they're doing it across the state. They're banning books about LGBTQ kids and characters. 
They're pulling down rainbow safe space stickers from classroom windows. There are reports from Orange County here in Orlando that teachers and administrators are being told to put pictures of their families in desks so as not to incur questions about the makeup of those families. There are even reports that LGBTQ educators were told uh, in a recent training that if a student asked about their same-sex partner, that they should refer to their partner as their friend. These are the things that we've warned about from the very beginning, that a piece of policy designed to erase LGBTQ people from the classroom, to censor us out of existence, is going to have that very effect. Proponents of the bill said, it doesn't say gay at all. You should just read the bill. The governor's office put out bigoted smears that have been repeated by you know, right-wing talking heads and Fox News insinuating that queer people by existing are a threat to children, that we're working hard to indoctrinate other people's students, when in truth, this has always been about censoring LGBTQ people back into the closet. And unfortunately, we're watching those chilling effects take hold across the state already. Uh, wow. Um, that like concrete example, I think, is really helpful because I'm sure most listeners would agree that uh, that is fully unacceptable and just absolutely ridiculous. And I'm wondering, like, back to this, you know, idea or question about advocacy and action, like what what are like steps that people can take, at least like for myself personally? And I don't know if you've gotten this feedback before. Like, I am a relatively politically engaged person. Like I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm like super involved and that I'm an expert by any means, but I even have been under this impression that like, I am not able to do anything about this. And like, I think there's a very general, like disempowered feeling when it comes to these bills and like this vitriol that just feels very overwhelming, similar to, you know, gun violence. And even though I'm in the field, like reproductive health care, I think like it feels too big and too much. And like, it's helpful, at least for me, um, to really have like concrete steps and like a few things that like I can either implement in my like weekly routine, my daily routine, certain places where I put my dollars that like really will affect change. And I'm wondering if you have like, you know, steps that you, I'm sure you do, but like steps that you share with people or uh, if this feeling can be, uh, th there's a framework that can be applied to this feeling that's more helpful um, in, in your work when you're talking to people. Yeah, there are a few things. Um, thank you, because I, I love, again, I'm a pragmatist, I'm an operationalist, so I wanna know, get like, what are we gonna to do? How are we gonna get it done? Um, and so there are, there are a couple of things. The first thing I would say, though, is I wanna reinforce something with folks who are listening. Apathy and despair are allies to the status quo. They're fuel for systems of oppression, right? They are the thing that keeps the whole machine working because so long as we're stuck in apathy and despair, we can't fight back. So we've got to get ourselves out of that. There is no, there's no winning in hopelessness, right? We have, to, we have to stand together and understand also that we're not going to affect sweeping change tomorrow. We're not going to overturn, you know, House Bill 1557 in Florida tomorrow. There are processes we're working through. Equality Florida is suing uh, the DeSantis administration over the law. Uh, you know, we're, we're working really hard to get it overturned in the, uh, in the next legislative session. But the truth is that tomorrow, House Bill 1557 is still going to be in effect here in the state of Florida. 
that doesn't mean that we're not doing good work in the process. And part of that good work is creating safety for those who are going to be directly harmed by these systems of oppression. That, that work is critical too. Just because the system of oppression is still brewing outside and seems to be gathering strength doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation to try and provide oasis and shelter to people who are most directly in the line of fire. So here's a couple of things I would encourage people to do. The first one, you said it, dollars. Dollars really matter. You don't have to invent a new nonprofit organization. Sometimes I see this. I want to encourage people before you go out and sign yourself up as a 501c3 to take on the world's problems, ask yourself if there's an organization being led by directly impacted people that's already doing that work. Organizations like Equality Florida can really use your support right now. The only way that we stay in community with school districts, with school board members, superintendents, helping them to implement uh, House Bill 1557 in ways that are the least harmful to students and families is with your support. We have to have staff. We have to have people making the phone calls, knocking on doors, um, you know, uh, meeting with, with school board members and lawmakers. We have to have that, that people power. And the only way we do that is through support. So I would say find an organization that is doing work you're passionate about and figure out what you can invest in that organization. Doesn't always have to be dollars, could be time. Is there an hour a month you're willing to invest? Think about all the things you invest an hour a month in. I get that screen time report from my phone and I wonder, oh. Don't even the, want to talk about it. I, I won't tell you how many hours. Of the number of hours, uh, how many of those could I have invested in, mm. you know, in spending time with an organization like Equality Florida, making phone calls, knocking doors, sending tweets, whatever it is that, that we're doing to organize. So it could be money, it could be time, but find an organization that's doing work that you're passionate about, that you think is critical to making change. The second thing I would say is get involved in politics and, and don't let it just be the, the sexy presidential politics of it all, right? Mm -hmm. Understand the importance of everything that happens all the way from the local level to the federal level. So many people are unaware of just how impacted they are by their city commissioners, by their school board members who make these decisions. They are elected members of you know, the, the body politic and yet people don't invest as much of their time in understanding those races. Um, but guess what? If there's a pothole outside your house that keeps flattening tires, if you've had to go and have tire changes three or four times, your city commissioner is probably responsible for that. If there's an issue with how many you know, taxes you're paying or the toll roads you're on, there's a chance that your city and county commission, that your mayors are a part of what's happening. If you're frustrated about these censorship you know, uh, uh, pieces of policy that are coming through, not only do state lawmakers have something to do with that, but so do school board members because they decide how these things are implemented. So get engaged on a level. If this is something you're passionate about, or if folks who are listening are passionate about sex ed in general, if you're passionate about the, you know, the, the, the physical health space, the mental health space, and you have to find a way to be involved in, in, you know, politics to be civically engaged, not just about who's running for president, but all the way down to the local level. And the last thing I would give people is, is maybe the most important, and that is be a safe space for people who need it in your life, especially for queer kids. I know what it felt like. I was in high school in 2004. 
when George W. Bush was running for president or for re-election, and he was weaponizing the issue of same-sex marriage to try to get over the finish line. He was deeply unpopular in this country. He'd launch us into a hideous war uh, that was getting you know tens of thousands of people killed. And as a response, he tried to weaponize culture war issues. And I know what it felt like to have my humanity, my identity debated on a national stage. I know how isolating that was. I know how debilitating it was. I know how hard it was to, to not feel safe, not just you know around the dinner table, but also in my, my US government class as we were talking about current events. I'm here because of the people who created safe spaces for me. The teacher who wore a rainbow lanyard, the, you know, the person in my community that offered a, a space anytime I needed to talk, the friends, parents who let me sit around their dinner table when I needed a, a different space to be in, creating those spaces where you're telling, especially queer kids, you're perfect exactly as you are, you're loved exactly as you are, and you're always gonna have a safe space when you're around me, that saves more lives than, than you might be willing to admit. Yeah, I'm just gonna let that settle for a second. Uh, okay, we have like 90 more questions. We could easily do a part two to this episode. <laughs> um, but, and like, you know, not to need to like hop around, you know, back to where we were and blah, blah, blah. But like, I really don't feel like we have necessarily talked about like what folks are feeling or what they can be doing with gun violence and like tying gun violence to like anti-LGBTQ plus or like LGBTQ plus hate. And I'm wondering like if you can connect the dots for me and for listeners when it comes to connecting those two pretty in interrelated or they can be um, concepts and realities and, um, and what folks can also be doing there to, to participate in, uh, the advocacy around anti-gun violence. Yeah. The issues are, are really closely linked. Listen, hate is incredibly dangerous. Armed hate, militarized hate is deadly. That's the link. And we know that LGBTQ people in this country, face hate at higher rates than, than most other folks. We especially know that to be true about transgender people right now. Um, Black trans women are still murdered at, at far higher rates than other demographics in our society. And I think it's something like 70 or 75% of the time a firearm is involved. We know that domestic violence, for instance, impacts LGBTQ people just like it impacts others, if not, if not more. There's a, a report that we put out called Remembering Pulse alongside Every Town for Gun Safety um, in, in 2021. And that report began to draw the links between these things. And, and so we know that if domestic violence impacts LGBTQ people and domestic violence is, is far more often deadly when a firearm is involved, then LGBTQ rights are a fight against gun violence in this country. Um, we know, our community knows what militarized hate looks like. We saw it rear its ugly head at Pulse nightclub. And, and I think part of the reason, I've, I've often argued that part of the reason that Pulse as a tragedy resonated so deeply with LGBTQ people across the world is not just the horrific loss of life. That is, of course, a part of it. But it's also because of what it represents, that, that invasion of safety 
what happened at Pulse nightclub is what queer people are afraid of from long before the time we come out. That being ourselves, that finding community in our identities will lead to discrimination, hatred, and ultimately violence. People are afraid for their lives when they make a decision to, to come out to the people around them. Um, and it's because of hate violence. Um, and so for me, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this current climate around LGBTQ issues, around transgender people specifically, and the rhetoric that's being used, the sort of, you know, trafficking in some of the oldest, darkest smears against LGBTQ people. And it feels very ominous to me. It feels like the kind of hate that I've come face to face with before. Um, in March, Governor DeSantis's office, this is the office of the governor of third largest state in our union, um, took to Twitter. He was desperate to get the bill over the finish line. It was floundering in the legislature. It was deeply unpopular with the electorate. And so he hit the nuclear button. Essentially, he sent his press secretary online to smear queer people. Um, it was a Sunday evening when she first tweeted that the House Bill 1557 should be called the anti-grooming bill and suggested that anyone who opposed HB 1557 and especially LGBTQ people were a threat to children that, you know, she insinuated um, that simply by existing that we were complicit in something insidious against young people in our state. And that was picked up almost immediately. It was repeated by Fox News hosts, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, it was then repeated by Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens. And surprise, it showed up on protest posters and banners outside of Disney in both California and here in Florida. And then, oh, by the way, it was being repeated by right-wing extremists who started protesting outside of LGBTQ establishments in places like Dallas, Texas. And then what do you know, it appears on that same you know, protest sign or in the communications of far-right extremist groups like the Proud Boys when they're threatening mass violence against pride festivals in places like Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. These things are not unconnected. Right, they're not individual isolated events. The words that we use have consequences and the kind of hateful, bigoted rhetoric that politicians like Governor DeSantis is using to propel these sort of short-term, short-sighted uh, political ambitions have ripple effects. They fuel hatred across the country and ultimately they fuel hate violence across the country. So I am deeply concerned about this marriage between the, the brazen, bigoted language being targeted at LGBTQ people and this country's obsession with easy access to firearms. Those two things existing at the same time are a recipe for violence against LGBTQ people. They are a recipe for disaster, disasters the likes of which we've seen before. Um, and quite honestly, I know that people in our community are also afraid of the consequences of, of that toxic brew. Absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciate you laying that out and explaining that. Um, this has been a really, really phenomenal episode, and I'm really grateful to have you on. And I'm wondering if you can share where folks can follow you, where they can get in touch with Equality Florida, if they are wanting to volunteer or donate, um, and how they can, uh, you know, really stay involved. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, folks can go to eqfl.org. If you are interested in learning more about Equality Florida, you want to pitch in a few bucks, of course, we would be really appreciative of that. Uh, you can also find Equality Florida on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Uh, we're everywhere at Equality FL. So uh, check out our handles there. And then if you like the After Dark version, uh, my Twitter feed is, is maybe a little more pointed, a little less polished, but you can find me uh, on, on social media. I'm on Twitter at B Joe Wolf and I'm on Instagram at Brandon J Wolf. But anywhere you find us, we'd love to stay in community with you. We'd love to continue the conversation. And of course, we would love to have your support as we continue to fight for full equality here in Florida. Thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. What's better than your partner's penis? Two of your partner's penises, of course. Say hello to the amazing, the wonderful, the super fun Clona Willy. Made in Portland, Oregon, Clona Willy is exactly what you think it is. A DIY molding kit that allows anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a high quality, 100% body safe sex toy. Because all parts are art. Use promo code SEXED with DB20 for 20% off at clonawilly.com. We talk a lot about sex ed, but when we're shopping for products to support our sexual wellness, exploration, and expression, we head to the experts at Lion's Den. For 50 plus years, Lion's Den has been a leader in adult products. Whether you want to explore a new kink or add a little romance to your evening, Lion's Den has something for all. Each location is brightly lit and staffed with the very best experts in pleasure, passion, and romance, so you can feel comfortable and confident in your purchases. Lion's Den's offering our listeners 15% off your purchase in-store and online using code SEXED with DB. Did you know that American regulators consider sex toys as for novelty use only? This means that the materials are unregulated, yet we put them in the most absorbent places in our bodies. 25 years ago, Fun Factory was born with one mission, to provide body-safe German-made toys for a level of safety you can't get anyplace else. I personally love that these toys are not only safe, but also ethically made and award-winning. It's the kind of luxury our bits deserve. Use discount code SEXED with DB for 15% off Fun Factory toys. Our creator, host, EP, and sound engineer is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds, and our ad music is by my stepdad, Bill Gant. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. Want to advertise with us? Email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on IG at sexedwithdbpodcast and on TikTok at sexedwithdb. See you next time.